Sundays. This is the sixth Sunday, and we are in trouble if that's really going to happen. We are in chapter four, Ephesians chapter four, and it's hey, no big deal. There's only four. There's only six chapters in Ephesians. This is going to be Ephesians and eight Sundays, I think. But today it's uh, chapter four, looking at. Um, we really launched into chapter four last Sunday. And we said, I hope you're going to remember there are two ways, there are two halves of the book of Ephesians, two steps. The first step is chapters one through three, which are the privileges that we have as the body of Christ. And on the basis of those privileges, thinking that doctrine through who am I in Christ, then we then move to the, uh, the responsibilities that we have in practice, the practices in chapters four through six. So Ephesians is doctrine about who you are, what is the church, and then how do we live? What does the church do in chapters four through six? Really nice little outline, the way that breaks out. And if you watch Paul's letters, that's usually the case. There'll be a more, a more instructional thing that gives you, we like to call it sometimes the theory. I don't mean we don't know. I mean, it's the, it's the conceptual material. That's the way I'm using the word theory. It's the conceptual material, and so they'll call it doctrine. It's all doctrine, but they'll call it doctrine because it's, it's the concept of what the church is, our privileges in Christ. And then you'll have the so what. The application is what do you do? How shall we then live? And that's where we are in Ephesians chapter 4 where we're looking at the worthy walk. So in 4.1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We've been talking about this calling, this high calling as a believer in Jesus Christ to be one with Jesus and therefore part of the body of Christ, which is the one new man composed of Jew and Gentile. And so the calling with which you've been called is nothing less than the righteousness of God imputed to you, the character of Jesus Christ expected from you. And so you, you read the character description with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And speaking of one and unity, the word is oneness in Greek, one spirit, one, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father. So he's talking about the way we're supposed to walk and it Guess what? The big theme that pops out, unity, oneness, oneness. And that is a challenge. In fact, we have to be diligent to preserve the oneness that the Holy Spirit is building in our hearts together in the bond of peace. I believe Colossians talks about your hearts being knit together in love. It's the same thing. Now, what happens if you and I are one, if we're connected and we don't allow for the severing of the connections. Blessed be the tie that binds them. If we stay connected as being described here, what does that make? I think it makes a net. And you can, we together are fit by God's grace, working of all the spiritual gifts as we've read, which is the next section. We are a net that God uses to catch people to come to know him and grow in Christ. We're, we're, a, we're a disciple making agency and we get net together because we have a higher purpose. <gasps> I always thought I had a higher purpose. We get really ethereal, mystical, um, emotional about the higher purpose. I wonder what it is. It's making disciples. It's what we're called to do. That's what the apostle Paul is doing. And that's why Paul teaches you to keep all that Jesus commanded. Jesus is the preceptor. And then Paul comes as an apostle of Jesus to the Gentiles, opening up the world to this body of Christ, which is his stewardship. And he teaches to keep all that Jesus commanded. I love to teach on the Christian life of Paul, that the apostle Paul is a disciple or an apostle. He's a student. Disciple just means student of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? We're not making disciples of of the pastor that's teaching, well, I'm a, I'm a disciple of this pastor, or I'm a disciple of that pastor. That's the Corinthian error that means you're acting like unbelievers. First Corinthians chapters two and three. What we're doing is making disciples of Jesus so that we keep all that he commanded. One, let me prove it to you. This is my favorite thing to do to show you the Christian life of Paul that we're just talking about 
someone sent by Jesus, and that's why we listen to him. People have just completely missed this because they don't know their Bible very well, but they may know a lot of theological reasoning that somebody has said. And John, if you want to turn real quick to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You have some explicitly legal commandment, Sinai sounding language from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 31. The Lord Jesus says, therefore, when, or, I'm sorry, therefore, when Jesus had gone out, when, sorry, when Judas had gone out, Jesus, okay, so all the unbelievers are out of the room, and now we've just got believers in, in the upper room discourse. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. And I know that's a lot of words, but you just saw the reciprocal glorifying of the Son to the Father and the Father to the Son, and that is enveloped from all eternity past in this relationship, this beautiful rapport between the Father and Son, and I believe what you call that is fellowship. And that's what we're talking about when we say we have been brought in and we have fellowship with God. God opens the circle and brings us into that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he'll exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself under his, exalt God. He'll exalt you at the proper time so that you cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. First Peter 5, 6, and 7. Okay. He says that there's this reciprocal glory. And then verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And I said to the Jews, now I'll also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. So since I'm leaving, then he launches, then he tells them, here's what you do. Here's your, your job. A new commandment I give to you in Tole. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you love, first statement, that even as I've loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love was stated four times, okay? One, a couple of times as a verb, a couple of times, um, once I think as a noun, if you have agape. So he puts the verb and the noun together, agapao, to love, the verb love, I'm sorry, the noun, agape, love. And that is a new, kine, a new commandment. It's not the old commandment of love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus, uh, I think it's 1918. It summarizes the law. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a new commandment. If you think that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, that the whole thing is driving towards the cross and the kingdom, because it is, then he's talking in that context of the commandments. A new commandment I give to you. So what do we do? Well, we study that commandment, we consider that commandment, we watch for that commandment, we see this commandment as our commandment. I mean, if we're like these guys in the room that are believers, now you can say, well, this is for, Jesus hasn't yet been crucified, he hasn't yet been resurrected. He is talking only to those who are about to become the apostles who, upon whom he builds the church. The church does not exist yet, but he's talking to those who will, he's prepping them and that's what the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, that's what it is, as we've studied in some detail. It is the seed that the rest of the New Testament grows out of, including the Gospels, including the, John, the Gospel of John that he's writing here. Because this teaching was given, obviously, before John wrote it, this down 60 years later. See what I'm saying? This is the seed, this is the event that gives them the body of teaching that they're going to build from. And so you have the New Testament closed by the writer who's writing these things down. By the way, the New Testament was not closed by Paul to say Paul is the next step. Wait a second. New Testament is closed by John. John wrote five books and they're probably, if not all, they're mostly written after Paul died. We're, we're disciples of Jesus is what I'm telling you. And so what you end up with here in this new commandment is something to watch for, to learn from, to build from, and it should prioritize things. We, we really need to get a priority. He didn't give us 10 commandments. He didn't give us 20 commandments. He didn't give us 50 commandments. He gave you one that you need to ponder and see how it relates to everything else he says. And I, I don't want to oversimplify 
Love is the hardest thing. Love in the character of Christ is a powerful thing that the Spirit of God has to produce through you. So, he tells them about the receiving of the Spirit and what's coming in this age that you and I now live in, this time of privilege that Paul has discussed in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Now, I've primed it, I hope, to show you that this is a new thing, a new idea. They were to love their neighbor under the old order as as the people of Yahweh. And now we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. So love your neighbor as yourself. If you get a Coke, then the other person gets a Coke too. That's nice. Or if you like Pepsi. But if, you, if, if you're hungry and you get yourself a sandwich, make two sandwiches because I'm there and I might be hungry too. That's love your neighbor as yourself. But the cross is I die and you get the life, okay? I give myself and trust in the Father to to do what he wants with that, which ends up being resurrection and glorification. I give myself sacrificially and the other person benefits because directly of that transaction. That I believe is, and and again, John, check check out 13, the introduction to 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 the section from John, he loved his own to the end. The love we're talking about is on the cross. It's the self-giving love. It's for God so agapao, the world. He gave his only begotten son. It's that kind, it's self-sacrificial. And it's disregard of self. It's for the benefit of the other in terms of what God would, would decide the benefit is. Now, I'm proud of the pump. The love that Christ commands of his disciples, Paul is not present. He is a Pharisee at this point. Uh, rebellious against God while claiming to be uh, one of the the Hasidim, one of the people that God loves and keeping the the law and the covenant. He needs to repent just like all of Israel of his self-righteousness and say, I'm not righteous. I need only the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. And Paul will make all those connections after uh, Acts and I. But he's not even present, but this is the new commandment. But I just want you to see, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, that's our book of study. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Now here's what happens. We are so Pauline. We read Paul. We read Paul. We read Paul. We, we want to know how do we live our, in our marriages. Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5 verse 22. You know, especially verse 22. Wives submit to your husbands. You know, really want to hammer that one. Well, in our culture where they're denying God's order of things. Of course, we want to help clarify and make sure everyone understands this is where the, the goods are. This is where life is. But in verse 25, 525, let's break it out of our Pauline um, <clears throat> crusty, well, this is in the marriage file. And let's think about what the sentence is that Paul says. In Ephesians 525, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I'm not picking things out of context. If you read John 13, 34, and 35, and you process it, you read it in context of that whole four-chapter discourse, if you, in the, including the prayer, that whole section of teaching in John, this is only for believers that will become the church. Okay, that's the seed for the church. If you, if you process that and all that Jesus says about the commands and the enablement to love in the upper room discourse... And then you come over here to Ephesians chapter 5 and you read this sentence and you look at it closely, you find some interesting things. Now in English, it may not jump out at you, but in Greek, the sentence, love one another just as I have loved you in John 13, 34, is the exact same sentence as Ephesians 5, 25. It is the same exact sentence in its structure and its verbs even in the reference he says different reference he says different nouns but they have the same reference well let me show you love one another as i've loved you you guys are to love one another as i've loved you husbands that'd be a subset of you christian men christians love same verb same tense same mood love your wives that'd be the other that'd be one another in a specific marital instance christian wives Husbands, love your wives. That'd be love one another. Just as, same particle, I have loved you in John 13, 34. In Ephesians 5, 25, he says, Christ loved the church. Because Paul is not first person now. He's talking about Jesus in the third person. So the referent is the same person. Love one another just as I've loved you is husbands love your wives just as Christ 
has loved the church. The you, as I've loved you. These men are going to become the apostles of the church. They're going to be the first Christians, the first, and that's Acts 2, the, uh, the day of Pentecost. It's very tight. The connection between the new commandment Jesus gives us to be, as I say, just, just walk as believers, as, as disciples of Jesus. And Christian husbands, a specific instance of that Christian love. Where only a husband, it's husband love. Only a husband can do for a wife and only a wife for a husband. What they're in, in their role in that, in that specific intimacy, that relationship and all that it entails. But it's a Christian love. It's a Christian self-giving. And he even says, just as any gave himself for you, uh, for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. I believe with all my heart that Paul was taught by the Lord Jesus. We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There are some other hints in the life of Paul, like in, in Galatians 1. There are some hints. We, it's, it's a little bit challenging to piece together the early years of Paul. We're pretty confident on, on some things. There was a sojourn of training time for about three years. There was this catching up to the third heaven, I believe, or simul, uh, the same time frame. And so Paul, as he says in every letter, is an apostle of one sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you get to know what Paul is teaching and the more you walk according to what he is saying, the more you and I are supposed to be imitators of God as beloved children and walking in love as Christ's love. We're putting on Christ. And what kind of opened my eyes to this and helped me think this through was the story of the New Testament documents. Paul said these things around the same time that Matthew was committing his gospel to paper. We, there's this whole season of from the day of Pentecost until, until the writings, Paul's imprisonments, Paul's letters. There's a whole season of New Testament prophets speaking direct revelation from God, like the Old Testament prophets would do to the church. I believe that was how God first nourished and nurtured his church and got it rolling. And then we have the, the prophets and apostles of the New Testament committed to scripture now, to the writings. But what I'm trying to show you is that we're not making a division. You don't have Paul and Matthew at odds. That's, that's, you've misunderstood Matthew. Here's what I'm also trying to say. Matthew was written to Christians. The discipleship discourses in Matthew are supposed to nail us. Not that we're under the law of Israel, but that we are under the Lord Jesus Christ and the new commandment. And what, and what Matthew does, it shows you what happened with the offer of the kingdom to Israel. They rejected it. It was postponed. That's very clear. It connects the Old Testament promises of the kingdom to the rejection of Israel when he came to his own and his own received him not. And that's what Matthew in part is showing you. The big turning point in Matthew 12 and then the parables beginning at 13, which are judgment. Okay, what's Matthew 5 through 7, the upper room discourse, I'm sorry, the, um, the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount. That is the, the Lord Jesus Christ telling you the correct interpretation of the Mosaic law. What was the law for? And what Paul says about that in the scriptures is that all scripture, including the Mosaic law, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Bingo. The law is a portrayal of the righteousness of God committed to Israel as a stewardship for that season of their execution under that national law. So we're not under the Mosaic law. And yet Jesus is teaching them the correct interpretation of the law. And we are under that correct interpretation in terms of the practice of the righteousness of God, which has been imputed to us. So what is he doing in five through seven? He's telling them on the Sermon on the Mount, you're not righteous and you think you are. If you've thought it, you've done it in terms of sin and you need a savior. And the, 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 upper, the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Mosaic Law do the same thing. They get you killed. They put you in the lake of fire. You're hopeless. That's what they do. The, the Sermon on the Mount and the Mosaic Law are of a piece. They're not wicked. They're not wrong. They kill you because we're wicked and wrong. And we need a savior. 
And so putting these things together, you don't have to strain your eyes and make the discipleship instructions in Matthew mean, well, faith in Christ means giving up all my, selling all my possessions, giving it to the poor. No, Matthew is showing Israel, a Jewish Christian readership, what happened and how to connect the offer of the kingdom and the Old Testament to the coming of Christ and what's ultimately coming. And that's why the Olivet Discourse 24-25, a Jewish Christian readership, but it is also written to show you what walking by the Spirit looks like because that's what Jesus did and he, that's what he's, 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 it's an impossible calling. It's an impossible standard. If you want to follow me, take up your cross. If you want to, he, he wants to come after me, uh, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so um, what you don't do is what Marcion did in the first century or second century. And you uh, cut out all the Jewish stuff out of the New Testament because he was an anti-Semite, you know, because the Jews killed Jesus as the anti-Semitic slur. Actually, Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. And in that sense, the father sacrificed the son for you and me. So let's don't be anti-Semitic. But um, Marcion said that uh, the, the Jews are the problem and we have to cut out all the Jewishness of the New Testament because that's all just been corrupted or because he mystically intuited, I suppose, that we're allowed to do that. And so he put himself over the scriptures and he knew better than what God had said. And, uh, and, and so just Paul, but not the Jewish parts of Paul, cut out all the, the Jewish stuff. That, that has been a spirit of satanic deception in this church and the body of Christ from its earliest days. Paul was fighting the opposite impulse of the Judaizers saying every, all the Christian men to be circumcised and, and legalism and uh, keep the law and faith instead of faith in Christ. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to show you through this study, and one of the great places is Ephesians 5 compared to John 13, is that we're dealing with the next step in discipleship, making disciples of all the nations. Paul is the fulfillment in part, and what he's doing in us when, as we continue the mission uh, is fulfilling the Great Commission. Paul goes to all the nations. We continue that work. And uh, it's, the, it's, it's the Gentile mission. So Jesus is ex anticipating the ministry of Paul when he even gives the Great Commission. Marcion would not read Matthew. He'd say, oh, it's not for us. Don't do that. Matthew nails us. And um, it's very helpful to check yourself about the walk that you've been called to walk. All right, that's a fun digression. Let's get back into um, verse... We were in verse um, six, the oneness, and then verses seven through 16 really develop the spiritual gifts and how God is causing this organization called the body of Christ to grow, this organism to grow. How we grow spiritually is by the spiritual gifts that God's given all of us. And as you're maturing in the word, benefiting from the giftedness of others, your gift is growing and maturing so that you're part of that construction. And I think it's good to think of the cell. In the cell, see, you, you shouldn't think of yourself as a cell in the body. We shouldn't think of ourselves that way because a cell can be seen as an autonomous, you know, complete organism um, in, in, a, in a way that you're not. You should think of yourself as a protein in the cell. Millions of proteins in a living cell in the human body. All the proteins need to be there. They all have a job. They're all designed in a specific structure and they're made for a certain task. And if all the proteins do their job, the cell is a functioning, successful thing. And you extrapolate that to all the cells and all the tissues and all the organs, you end up with a whole body. And so this little church, I think is a cell. We are, we're a cell within the body. And each of us were proteins within the cell and we all have this function. But in Ephesians chapter four, he says, you all have a spiritual gift and you're all growing up into it. And so the communicators in verse 11 are there for the equipping of the saints in verse 12. That's you for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The communicators, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, these communicators are there for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and we have a goal until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so there's a consequence in verses 14 through 16. 
verses 14 through 16. As a result that we are growing into maturity, that that's our goal, we shouldn't be children. See how that fits together? See what he did there? As a consequence of maturing, we should not be children. And what are children? They are useless when it comes to fighting the current. In order that we no longer be children, tossed about by the waves, that word, that, that phrase tossed about by the waves is this word right here. Cludonizomenoi. It's one of the coolest words uh, in Cludonizomenoi. <laughs> now the, the ending is just a participle. Um, but probably Cludonizo, I think, is, as I recall, that's the, that's the word. Cludonizo. Well, it's from the word waves. And what happens to somebody that's at the mercy of the waves is Cludon. I think Cludon is, is the waves. So, um, but it just, this is one word that's being translated in all the English translations, tossed about by the waves, at the mercy of the waves. Now, and what else? And carried about by every wind of doctrine, didascalia doctrine. So what he's saying is, if you grow in, if the, if the communicators are doing their job, and in part we're reading Ephesians, that's the apostles and prophets, they, they did their job. And you've been, uh, become a Christian, and so the evangelists at some level have done their job, and the pastors and teachers are supposed to be teaching. See, I think pastors teach, they feed the Lord's flock. If, if that's going on, and that's this indispensable part of the giftedness of the church, then the rest can happen. I think from that, we develop a philosophy of ministry that says the Marys that want to sit and listen and the Marthas that don't listen, but they do, they got to get this thing together. Mary needs to listen so that she can join Martha and do, and Martha needs to join Mary and listen so that she's equipped by the word to do. And the idea, what I'm trying to say is the idea that we're not going to be a product of God's word and the inner man before we are executing God's works with our spirit-filled hands, that's absurd. You're supposed to be X, uh, uh, Y as a function of X. The, the, the outcome of the word and what I do is supposed to be a product of the word and the time that we spend in the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So that's the idea um, of this church. If we, if we have to start from square one, we, we start with the gospel so that we end up with a believer. And if we have a new believer, then we have to learn some things. You don't send the new believer out right away. Okay, let's get you evangelizing in the corporate evangelism project. Well, they should come along, but you shouldn't hang the ministry on them because they don't know what they're doing. They're babies in Christ. They've got to grow. They haven't even been hurt by other Christians yet right? He touched my crayon. So I hit him. Or remember there's two kinds of people in the church or two kinds of people in, in your life. These people haven't hurt me yet. And these people hurt me. Spend enough time with everybody. They'll all end up in this category. These people have hurt me. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. All right. What's happening is we're growing uh, in the word so that we're mature. And here's what you get. In order that we no longer be children, tossed about by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There are a lot of doctrines blowing around today. My favorite one to beat up on right now is the concept of systemic racism. Oh, is he gonna go there? This is a wind of doctrine that the children of the body of Christ have swallowed. It's poisoning them because the, the word, it's, it's, a, it's an unfalsifiable um, proposition. It's, it just sounds good. There's no way to quantify it. Sociologists invent, try to invent ways to make their soft science into hard science with the numbers. The system is the rule of law and we're a nation of laws, not men. So we're not partial to anyone. That's the system. If it isn't properly administered, that's where we address it with our various methods. But the system is recognizing God's design for man to respond to him as 
free to God, like before the Lord. But we are uh, seeing a lot of children tossed about by the winds that blow. And how does that happen? How do we get there? How do you get seminaries buying into the social justice warrior Marxist lies? How do you end up with Satan's lies calling the tune for seminaries and pastors and churches throughout this country? How does it happen? I think there's one answer. We got this idea, I think, from the charismatic movement through the radio, K-Love and popular Christian radio was originally populated by the vineyard movement, by the charismatic movement. If I've offended anyone by saying that, I don't think that's, that's not controversial. That's just what happened in pop Christian music. Started back with Lonnie Frisbee and there is a movement within our country, a theological movement of charismatic emphasis that has really tended toward the music. And it does. I mean, it's, it's emotional. And here's the, the core theology, in my view, of the Christian life and the charismatic movement. It's about this mystical sense of spiritual feeling. That's the core. That's the center of Christianity is feeling. And so with Obi-Wan Kenobi, we search our feelings to see if what I'm hearing is true. We in our spiritual, mystical, sensory receptor kind of learn to feel it, to feel if something's right. I don't have peace and I've prayed. And so I'll keep praying till I have peace. And now I have peace. So God gave me the answer in prayer, misapplying Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says nothing about decision-making. It's all about the decision to trust God and thank him when you give your request so that he brings his peace. The peace isn't an answer yes or no. The peace is God's grace in your crisis when you're making your request with thanksgiving. But the core of the charismatic urge is this, this inner feeling, this umph. And I know what, I, I get it. I understand why. It's such an attractive thing. Feelings are great. The things that in this life that are like emotions um, are, are wonderful things. They're the desserts in life. You can think of lots of different aspects of life that have their dessert. Right? But it's not the focal thing. It's not the main thing. It's not even the principal thing. And you can take the dessert and destroy yourself with it if you're not properly Calibrated. So if the, I'm just trying to do a little bit of summary, uh, Christi, Christian postmortem in American history, what we've done in the evangelical movement is we've given in to the liberal urge of the West of the, of the, the Germans in the early late 1800s, Schleiermacher that said, it's all about the inner feeling. We let go of the Bible. And then the evangelicals say, well, we believe the Bible, but the goal, the core the focus is this inner nudge, this inner leaning, this mystical feeling. And we end up with this focus. And I feel awful about the history of chattel slavery in my country. And I feel, and I feel, and I feel. And I see videos of people being hurt and it hurts my feelings. And it makes me think that just we've got to, to, to rise up. And my feelings have to be right because I've been taught for a whole generation that that's the center of the Christian experience is our feelings. And the, the problem is that feelings are following something. I see one video. Why don't you watch all the videos? Let's see the whole thing. Let's go to all the police funerals, all the police funerals and start feeling and, and you, you can't. That's not how we're made. That's not what we're supposed to do. So I believe that what Paul does in Ephesians is basically ignored, basically ignored by people because you have to think, you have to put these logical constructs together. We're, I'm doing my best to kind of help you see how these things work. I try to illustrate it, but, but you got to think. And thinking becomes this thing that you start to feel like doing. Do you feel like thinking? I pray that more and more you do. Most people don't. At times, none of us do. 
But what Paul gives us in this logical structure is not just a license to think, but an absolute injunction. You're commanded to think these thoughts after God. And the feelings that come from that attention are of a different piece. They're a different sort. They're the fruit of the spirit, love, joy. Well, not love, but joy and peace, patience, kindness. They are associated, if you will, emotions that go with these things that it's a, God, it's a work of God. It's not a rosy glow. Like you go to church long enough, you start smiling the same way everyone else does. Right? That's not, that's not Christianity. That's cultural Christianity. So we've got, I'm asking you to let this sink in what Paul's teaching. The goal of this maturity is in part that we're no longer children tossed about by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I want to close down on that little illustration with the current events. Were we not in this, well, in the last 12 months, were we not focused, laser focused on the number one issue in our country that was such an outrage in the social life of our country? What was it? Me too. I mean, a long time ago, back when Pete Buttigieg was running for president. I mean, do you remember a long time ago, like less than a year ago, when it was all about Me Too and the women being oppressed by the men? Now, have you listened to hip hop music? Do you know what it says about women and men as a cultural norm? Can we like for a second, put these thoughts together and talk about the human rights concerns. I mean, now to do that, you'll have to completely break out of both of those chains of emotional life and start thinking God's thoughts and say, of course, of course there's a right way, but it starts with God. But I'm just saying we're tossed about, oh, it's about me too now. No, we're always supposed to concern ourselves for the benefit of the other and be respectful. And you never ask someone to sin. I love you so much. Let's sin together. You never do that. That's not love. That's a lie. That's hating their soul. That's trying to destroy their soul. So if you love somebody, you don't ever invite them to sin. You invite them to consider Christ and to walk with him. And that's real Christian love. And if, and if, if that's going to go toward marriage, that'd be a good basis for marriage which could involve sexual, sexual expression in marriage. That's God's design. Yeah, that's what that's for, right? And so I've solved all of our problems. Get back with God, only marry one person and do, the, do it for the Lord's sake. And then sexual activities for marriage and it's nowhere else. And we just, we just solved all kinds of problems that we've unleashed on ourselves. The interchangeability, before it was me too, it was trans. Interchangeability of men and women. That doesn't really work. You can't have a me too movement if men and women are interchangeable because the point of me too is that men are sexually oppressive of women. There was never a man like me too. The men in in the women's march would be just not really appropriate. This isn't about you. This is about us getting you in your place. So you can't have trans in me too. I'm just saying like all these silly problems. And I know none of you are, are taken in by these things, but your brothers and sisters in Christ are, and they are children thrown about by all these waves, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. In the craftiness of men and trickery toward the fulfillment of deceitful schemes. Satan is behind it, but he's using people and they have their little clever ruses. Satan's playing chess, but his minions are playing checkers with you and they beat you. They beat us a lot with their little crafty schemes. And so God's design will be maturity, but practicing the truth in love, let us grow into him. That's the alternative to buying into these lies being thrown about by every wind of doctrine. You could have translated this word practicing the truth as truthing but that's not an English word, but it's the verb form of truth. So we'll supply the word practicing the truth in love. Let us grow into him. If that's your goal, if that's what you want, I want to grow into Christ. Then you and I have fellowship. There are other things we'll find that we disagree about 
Possibly some of my illustrations have been, well, I don't really get that. I understand that. But if you get this, the central thing, then we are on the same path. We are lockstep on what life is about. Pushing the implications of this, maybe there's a maturity difference. Pushing the implications is something we wanna follow up on, but this is our goal. Let us grow into him who is the head with reference to all things, namely Christ, from whom the whole body by means of being fitted together and by means of being held together through every joint of supply, according to the working in measure of each individual part causes the growth of the body unto the building up of itself in love. Now, sometimes Paul gives you a, um, a model of irreducible complexity. He gives you a sentence that I want to pick apart and give you every little piece and build a, you know, a theology out of each part. And we can talk about the parts, but not today. But this is irreducibly complex. The, um, the argument from design that people like the Discovery Institute propose in terms of irreducible complexity is, is like this. There's a, there's a single celled organism or a, uh, whatever, I forget how many cells it is, but there, there's this organism that has um, very few parts. It's got like three parts and it can't exist without all three parts. Um, that's what's going on here in this discussion. You need to have this whole sentence as I put it up on the screen in verses 15 through 16 to even understand what the sentence is saying. And if you pull any piece out of it, you don't understand the sentence, but let's trace the main flow of what he says because the secret in Greek is always in the verbs. By practicing the truth in love, our hortatory exhortation, what we, our hortatory subjunctive, our, our exhortation for all of us, let us grow into him from whom the whole body causes the growth. The whole body causes the growth of the body into the building up of itself in love. That's, that's, the, that's what he's talking about. We need to grow into Christ from whom the whole body causes the growth. So there's power, but the body is in a process of growing. And I believe the word causes the growth is referring back to the body who is empowered by Christ. But the point is that there's a growth process that God is bringing about and Jesus Christ is in charge of it. But it's very clear that the body causes the growth of itself in love. How in the world can you be responsible for the body growing? Now in your English, there's all these other words and we need to trace those out, but just watch the main sentence. Let us grow into him, that's Christ, from whom the whole body causes the growth of the body into the building, unto the building up of itself in love. If we're growing into Christ individually, then that growth is causing this body to grow. So you and I have responsibility in this sovereign work of God. And he's very explicit. The body causes itself to grow, building up of itself in love. Now I know my English isn't great up there, but it's interlinear Greek. The proposition that you get out of verses 15 and 16 in summary, the, the, the summary idea of the apostle Paul is that the body of Christ and individuals growing up into him, the body of Christ is growing itself. It's, it's expanding, it's growing. I think there's no other way. So what's church growth really supposed to be like individual spiritual maturity which results in corporate benefits as the body as you're growing spiritually you're using your gift and it's edifying others and they're growing spiritually so the body is this growing self-growing organism what's the responsible component here well from whom the lord is doing this fitting together he's he's providing the structure of the joints of supply and making our works as individual parts effective, equipping us for them, all these things. He's making you the cell and the body you're supposed to be. But what's your job? We are to grow into him. Consider Christ. See, the apostle Paul is a apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are Christians. We grow into Christ. 
And of course, I'm summarizing with just tracing the verbal flow, I'm summarizing a huge doctrinal com contingent in Ephesians. But he's saying that the body causes its own growth by individuals growing into Christ. Now, the last thing I want to say about this is how do you grow into Christ? How do you grow into him? It doesn't tell you how you do it. It says, let us do it. It also says he sets it up with all this infrastructure by means of being fitted together, by means of being held together through every joint of supply. You've got to stay connected to the body. There's no independent, there's no severing the ties. You've got to stay connected for this thing to happen. What else? Well, you have to put on Christ. There's no shortcut. It's no surprise to me that that we don't see an American evangelical Christendom. We don't see much of an expression of this. I'm not surprised by that. These things are hard. This is the worst sermon ever preached. Horrible sermon. It's not a sermon. It's like saying someone has a Corvette. It's a terrible dump truck. It's the worst dump truck I've ever seen because that's not what we're doing. I'm not here to tell you what to do to get your emotions charged up so that you'll do the course of action that I say. I was taught to do that. I don't do that. This is harder. I don't know how to do a sermon out of this. I really don't. I don't know how to take this and, and make you emotionally vibrate so that you just really, really want it because the first thing you have to do is understand what he's saying. What does it even mean? And what happens is, and so I think what happens in American preaching, at least that I know of, is that we assume that everybody sort of knows what it means. Then we're really going to shepherd them to want to do it. And that works in some places in scripture, but in others, it's like hard. It's the meat. So to me, this is very exciting material. But let us grow into him, Christ, from whom the whole body, by, being, by means of being fitted together, by means of being held together through every joint of supply, this combining of the body, according to the working of the measure of each individual part, that's you working your part, causes the growth. The whole body causes the growth of the body unto the building of, of itself up in love. You can't do it without Jesus Christ. In fact, you can't do it without Christ being formed in you. If I just say theology, if I just give you theological categories and you just have to trust me that I'm getting it from the Bible, if I just do that as opposed to what we're doing here, which is harder, then what you end up with is a possible model that might connect to what this is saying. But instead, if I say, I'm sorry, this is a challenging section of scripture and you need to meditate on it. You need to think through what's being said, what your responsibility is, what Christ's responsibility is, how this all works. You'll end up with a biblical understanding of the church. After I do that myself, I can tell you there is no spiritual growth as described here without connection to one another. You have to have the functioning of the individual members doing their part as everything, all the structures are fitted together with all the joints of supply so that this growth project can work. It has to all fit together. Theories that I might have of, well, the, the Christians are too weak and they depend on each other too much or something. Maybe that's your experience. The text here says you have to have the, the, the Lord Jesus working in the body of Christ and the individual members for it to grow, for the, for the members to grow the body itself. Now, this is a great place to stop. I call it community override when someone says that the only Christianity is corporate Christianity Meaning there's no Holy Spirit filling unless it's all of us together because the verbs are in the plural. 
be filled by the spirits in the plural. So it means, you know, it's a corporate thing and everybody has to have it at the same time. No, you have a spiritual life. You have an individual walk with God. It happens as you think and understand what God's word says, as you trust him, as the Holy Spirit is filling you with his words, that you're growing and expressing the character of Christ in your choices and in your actions. As you grow in your giftedness, you grow in your capacity to love, as you put on Christ as an individual. Absolutely, that's between you and the Lord, but he uses people in that process. I'll give you the, the, the greatest illustration in my life right now is Paul's prayers. Teach me to pray. I wouldn't know how to pray. Oh, I just kind of feel like asking him this way. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. We pray to the Father, pray for God's glory, God to have his way. Of course, this is a great summary way to pray. Not something you have to quote, but this is the way you pray. God, have your way. Just like, the, just like Jesus prayed, so you pray. And then Paul will continue praying to the Father in the name of the Son, just like Jesus taught his disciples. I wouldn't know how to pray for the spiritual needs, and I wouldn't know what those needs were if I didn't have Paul teaching me here in the text. And you could say, well, that's the Bible. You know, you're reading the Bible, and that's the... Paul is a personal apostle who's saying these thoughts and the inspiration of the Spirit to influence his readers. And I'm benefiting from that. And we don't want to cut Paul out of his text. I mean, the Holy Spirit is inspiring, but he did it that way. That's his method. So what I'm saying to you is there is the personal connection and influence and equipping that God brings through each other. Sometimes I wish it wasn't that way. Sometimes I wish I didn't need other believers because they're sinful and petty and, and all the things that I am, but I don't think of myself as. People hurt you. People mess up. And then they do something that equips you. And it's hard to bear along with that. That's the calling. That's what we're called to do. And we'll pick up the Christian walk in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 uh, next hour. As you uh, think about these things, I challenge you to read again what this description of the body of Christ is, how we're supposed to walk in spiritual growth and the function of our gifts and putting on Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the one and the many, for the individual spiritual life where we walk by the Spirit um, and are responsible for our choices. We thank you for the way as we make those choices to serve you, to put on your Son, to pay attention to your Word. You make us useful in each other's lives. Father, apparently not otherwise, not without it being about the Lord Jesus, not without putting on Christ. Father, let this be true at Preston City Bible Church. Indeed, all the churches, all those that seek you, seek your word, seek to know you um, through what Jesus Christ has actually said. And those that are in shackled, that are shackled to uh, the models and musings of mere men instead of what the Spirit has given us through the apostles. Father, break them free. Break, from, break them free from those chains of mind where they too, like little children, have been cast about by every wave and every wind of doctrine that blows. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.